This is Wilderness and Wildlife, presented by the Gallatin Wildlife Association in Bozeman, Montana. This is a half-hour program featuring commentaries and interviews with wildlife and wilderness advocates relating to the unique natural environment that we enjoy in the wildlands of the West and across America. I'm your host, Jay Shell. Our guest today is Bruce Gordon. He's the founder and the president of EcoFlight in Aspen, Colorado. And so uh, we're going to get started and welcome Bruce. It's great to be talking with you. Thanks, John. Known of you for many years. Yeah, been been around for many years. All right. So, what is EcoFlight? How did it get started? Well, EcoFlight's probably the uh, the latest iteration of what I call conservation flying. And uh, so, our our mission is to educate and advocate for the environment using small planes. Uh-huh. We do that by flying political decision makers, media representatives, and concerned citizens, and. Uh, we will fly scientists, anybody we feel that really uh, have an impact on these conservation issues and try to understand what's going on in our world. So, uh-huh. you know, it's conservation flying, and um, it, it's a way for people to get the big picture, the big perspective. So what uh, what was the source of the idea? Where, where did it get started? Well, many years ago, um, you know, we got together, I... Uh, it was, it was another, another organization, and I was one of the original directors, and it was sort of merging the love of flying with the love of the environment, and uh, it's uh, gone through lots of different uh, changes, but uh, today we pretty much are, are uh, you know, keeping with the original idea, which is to be advocates, to be uh, you know, policy-driven and try to really make an impact. Our mission is to really try to inspire people to make a stance on what they care about. And when you're in the airplane, you're getting the aerial perspective and you're looking at the landscape. And so that's what we want them to do. We don't want them proverbially looking at the left side of the window or proverbially looking at the right side of the window, listening to the pundits, doing all that, but looking at the landscape, educating themselves on this, and then really advocating for what they care about. So have you always been in Aspen? I've lived in Aspen an awful long time. Yeah, I, was, uh-huh. uh, I mean, not all. I didn't. I wasn't born here. I was uh, basically born in the East Coast, but I've been uh-huh. in Aspen for about fifty years as a as a climber, uh-huh. uh, mostly in the beginning, and then uh, got into aviation through the uh, VA bill. I had been uh, drafted during the Vietnam deal, and mm-hmm. uh, turned out I didn't know this, but many years later, when I was trying to transition from being a ski bum and a climbing bum to uh, figuring out what to do, I, uh, a guy told me I was eligible for the VA bill, so I learned to fly, and uh, I've been on mountain rescue forever, so I was flying for mountain rescue, and I see. Uh, got into this conservation aviation. <laughs> so uh, how, how long ago was that when you got started? Well, 40 years ago, I guess. Oh, wow. Something like that. And, and EcoFlight has been around for all that time, huh? No, EcoFlight, like I said, is the latest iteration. So EcoFlight, we're celebrating our 20th year anniversary uh-huh. uh, this year. And, uh, you know, we, we keep ourselves, you know, what we consider to be small and hard-hitting. Uh, we mm-hmm. try to really have an impact. And uh, with each and every flight, we try to fly the press. We try to do a lot of photojournalism uh, with the advent nowadays and 
not just using film, you know, we have a thing called digital photography oh. and photoshopping. So all of a sudden, I'm like a really good photographer. So uh, has uh, y- y- you've gone through some changes in the way you operate over the years? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, things have evolved. I mean, just like I, I'm sort of making a joke because of my wife, Janie, who's my partner and... Uh, uh-huh. In EcoFlight, and in fact, she's a new executive director. I'm I'm just the chief pilot now, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm taking orders from her. But I guess I always have to. And uh-huh. She's a superb photographer, and uh-huh. uh, so in the beginning, you know, you'd have all these slides and pictures, and you know, they were adequate, but they weren't, you know, really good. But with Photoshop and uh, you know, uh, the advent of better better uh, cameras, where you have GPS on the cameras. You know, we've gotten to be a lot more exacting, a lot more, a lot more uh, truth-telling of, of the landscapes, geo-referencing, I mean, just the uh, ability to put in latitudes and longitudes for certain things we're looking at, whether it's a, a drilling well or a mine or, a, you know, where even where wildlife are. Um, you know, the habitats, you know, we can really uh, get there a lot uh, more cost-effectively. We can fly directly to these coordinates. So the technology, things have changed a lot. And then most recently uh, with this COVID, you know, you know, we pride ourselves, like I said, on filling our passengers, with, filling the planes with passengers from a diverse stakeholders, but also, you know, with the press and all kinds of scientists and everybody we think can be impactful. But with COVID, we weren't doing that. So uh, we started uh, taking, making videos. And we'd find an issue that uh, some of our colleagues wanted us to highlight, and we would use uh, GoPros on the wings. We'd have a videographer on staff. We would create these videos that I, I felt personally were really quite telling. We'd distribute them to press outlets, and uh, and the organizations we collaborated with would use them to further their missions. So that was a really interesting change that we made how many planes are uh, involved well uh it varies but right now we have two uh centurion 210s which is a uh high per- the the highest performing single engine airplane six seaters we use two two professional pilots and uh we cover an awful lot of ground we fly an awful lot uh, we try to keep our budget small because we are a non-profit we don't turn down many requests, and as things have become more challenging with the environment and uh, the climate change and, and wildlife moving in different patterns throughout the West, we don't turn down many requests, so we're pretty darn busy. Mm. So uh, are these planes owned by you, or are they leased? Yes, these are these are uh, planes that are, one, one is owned and one is, uh, you know, the word is leased, but uh, uh, we, have, we have a very generous... Uh, person here in Aspen that, that uh, has us u- utilize his airplane. Oh, he doesn't fly it very much, and you know, so we take care of the expenses on it, etc. So, but it wouldn't be, a, you know, a, like a lease, I guess. On your website, uh, there's a photograph of a of a bunch of uh, pilots uh, or fellows. Are, are are they all pilots? I'm not sure which picture you're talking about, but. You know, there's, you know, being a, a member of this Aspen community, a good example would be, uh, uh, and, and an interesting story, if, if we have time, is, you know, the COVID created enormous amounts of challenges. Mm-hmm. And one, is, one uh, was that we, we get 
funded by a major foundation, and you know we weren't able to uh, to do some flying. And their their uh, initiatives are usually dealing with the tribes. And so Janie really figured out that the tribes really weren't getting PPE equipment. They uh, you know for to to protect them from the COVID, and it was getting lost in the bureaucracy. Whereas the current administration, that that administration was saying they were sending this stuff, it was getting all bogged down and it wasn't reaching the people. And we have a, uh, a Native American on our board, and he said, you know, what's going on is a tragedy. Mm. And he pointed it to our attention, and Janie talked to the foundation and said, can you help us out and get us supplies and we'll distribute them. Mm. So we go to the, uh, get uh, get delivery of the FedEx trucks. Uh, and all of a sudden we figured, you know, it'd be a few PPE and I would take them in my airplane. But a, t- a big, big uh, FedEx truck shows up with a half a million PPE equipment. And we go, oh, my God, what are we going to do with this? So we've got volunteers. The, the local FBO uh, let us use their hangar. And we got some volunteers from town and repackaged these boxes and put them into sacks. And then I said, well, I guess that'll work, and I'll have to make about a 300 trips to these remote little airstrips. Uh. And then I had the idea, and maybe this is the picture you're referring to, of getting friends and acquaintances yeah. on the airfield. So I ended up commandeering about 10 pilots, uh. and we all made two or three trips, and we landed in these remote strips uh, and distributed a half a million tribal, uh, half a million CPE to the tribes. Oh, that's great. Very yeah, good. It was really cool. It was really, yeah. really uh, meaningful. Yeah. So, uh, who foots the cost for all of this? Uh, do you have some foundation funding, or do your do your clients compensate you? How do you, how do you arrange that? No, we operate strictly under Part ninety one, and, and it's very important that we adhere to all the rules, and so we're not compensated uh, for the flight. We do. Uh, we're a nonprofit. So we go, and we're very fortunate to get foundations to help us uh, in our mission, grants, personal tax-deductible donations, and uh, we have a budget, and then we pay ourselves a small salary and uh, operate the planes and do business as a 501c3 organization. So you have two planes currently in use. Each plane carries six passengers, including the pilot? Including the pilot, yes. Uh Uh-huh. So on a, a group, you could take a group of five with you. We could take five. Yeah. And, you know, the way it usually works is we go to a destination and we will fly multiple flights at these places. These, uh-huh. these what I call aerial educational tours, uh-huh. you know, go around the issue at hand, you know, for a 30, 45-minute flight. And we do uh, numerous flights over that and, you know, fly a good good amount of people. And again, we work very diligently uh, with our partner groups or by ourselves sometimes also, just targeting people that we think will have the most impact. And as we're doing that, because of course what we're doing is we don't want to just show the five people, we want everyone to see what we're seeing. So uh-huh. we've, uh, you know, it goes back to your other question about uh, how things have changed. And we have people on staff now that we distribute images and data and text on social media, we create these video films for distribution and follow-ups to all the passengers. So who can apply for uh, for your services? Well, mostly work with nonprofits, other nonprofits, but people who have a need. 
people that understand the aerial perspective can really help people understand an issue, you know, whether it's in need of photographs over a mining site or uh, wildlife corridors that might be threatened by railroad or under uh, people trying to locate where they want to put underpasses. Mm -hmm. People need to get in touch with us on our website, ecoflight.org, and uh, make a request. Uh Is there a process for applying? Uh, Is there paperwork to fill out? How do you get it? Not really. We've gotten recently into asking organizations to uh, really define what they're after, what is their mission. You know, we're not into the joyride business at all. We, we want to have an impact. All right. As aviation fuel lately is through the roof, and uh, we want people to, to carefully think out what they want to accomplish. And so we ask them, you know, lately what they're thinking about, who their target audiences might be, and mostly what the issue is and what, what their concerns are. So uh, tell me a little more about the kinds of services. Uh, you, you mentioned you do a lot of photography. Uh, I assume do you do some mapping. What else do you do? Yeah, we do, do a, lot of, a lot of mapping, a lot of photography. Uh, you know, in the past, I've, I've tracked wildlife from the air, everything from uh, helping to reintroduce the wolf into Yellowstone to uh, flights that I've uh, been fortunate enough to carry out in uh, out in Africa and Namibia, you know, traveling oh, wow. is because I know you're concerned with wildlife yeah. a lot. I've, you have a list of animals, right, and, right, and we've flown for just about every one of them you got there, and I've got probably stories about each one of them, and everything mm. from uh, the, uh, the 10-foot harpy eagle down in Belize to uh, the deer crossings that, and the migration routes of the pronghorn over by the, uh, the Red Desert up into the Jackson area. So, I mean, yeah, the airplane, of course, is incredibly valuable for putting together the pieces that help landscape and wildlife managers to uh, help them in, in uh, doing the best they can for mitigating the impact of humans, climate change on some of their migration routes and, and uh, other aspects of of the wildlife and biological corridors. I didn't realize you went outside the U.S. You mentioned Africa and South America. Yeah, so through my career, I, I, I've flown all these places. Mostly now we are flying in the American West. But yeah, through the years, I've actually taken a little plane across the Atlantic and down the Africa coast and worked down there. And every winter, since it's a fierce winter here in the Rockies, Mm-hmm. I would take advantage of that and go down to uh, South America and Central America. Have you seen signs of global warming, uh, drought in places that are quite visible from the air? Yeah, it, it's astonishing what's been going on the last five years even, just uh, just that recently, whether it's... Uh, and again, all this information, I encourage people who are interested in what we're doing to get on our website and that... that that talks a lot about some of the images I've been able to bring back that really show a difference. Just uh, three weeks ago, I was with Smithsonian Magazine over at Lake Powell, mm. and you look at the canyons like the Escalante Arm of the of the Grand, of Lake Powell, and it's totally dry. And it used to be, you know, be a waterway, and the the uh, Lake Powell is only 24% full right now. Lake Mead is 33% full right now. So. It's, Really, and after we, you know, it was known that we were doing some of these flights, we got a, a ton of calls. Everyone wanted to get up in the air and see this because it's such a prominent issue right now, especially with the drought. 
right now here in Colorado, we're getting really super windstorms that are coming in, much more, in my opinion, and in my experience, than we've ever had before. Gusting to 50 miles an hour has, has been a daily occurrence for the last week. But it's not just that. What it's doing is depositing the dust from Utah on all of our mountains here. So we still have snow on the peaks, and the runoff is just starting. But because of the dust on, on this, and we discovered this many years ago, we call it red snow. And because of the uh, disturbance of some of the grounds of Utah and the big winds that have happened, that dust is deposited on the slopes up high, and, and it increases the melting. I mean, and so it's just rushing through. It's not absorbing in the ground. So it's a very obvious precursor of what I say is climate change, or at least what it is right now. It's exacerbated by this, and it's very visual. The glaciers up in Glacier Park, just on pictures I've taken in the last five, ten years, super different in the amount of snow, etc., and the glaciers receding as they have. So, yeah, we do a lot of that kind of stuff. The fires, I mean, another thing you talk about, uh, you know, climate is, is a lot of my work now. We have, a, have some grants out in California, and boy, it's hard to fly over a forest that has not burned or is burning. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last couple of years has been uh, a lot of flights with uh, wildland managers and forest fire supervisors over these landscapes and trying to mitigate and plan and strategize how they can quell some of these fires or at least uh, have, have a st- strategy in place and not just all of a sudden the fire happens and then they try to address it. So they're really trying to get on top of that. So a lot of flights have seen that, but the fires sure. are uh, you know, just a part of the West, but it's uh, devastating what's going on. Are there any limits on the kind of engagement that you'll do? That's a good question. I'd say yes <laughs> without yeah. thinking of any. Yeah, right. Um, I'm not going to, uh, you know, safety is obviously our, our number one, number two, and number three concerns. So we mm-hmm. don't, you know, fly when the conditions aren't right or we don't fly in areas that we think might be, uh, you know, more challenging. Mm-hmm. You know, especially with passengers. No, I I feel strongly like what I said. I don't. I mean, I have my own personal opinions about things, but what I want is for people to get in the air and educate themselves. So I mean, is you know, I take that question to mean would you not fly if they want to uh, put in a pipeline or something <laughs> like that? I mean, you know, I I wanted to deal with the environment. Mm, right. Mean, right. Yeah. So that would be. Yeah, that would be uh, something we would not fly for. It has to deal with conservation. So, have you done any fi- any fire damage surveys? Yeah, we we you know, like I said, the last couple of years has been a ton of flights looking at the, uh, some of the devastations. I mean, I forgot the name of it right now. That that town that was wiped wiped out just north of Chico, California. Um, oh yeah, Paradise, I think. It was. Paradise, yeah, right. Paradise, yeah. You know, fly over that and document that and see where where these fires started, how they. You know, and bring back those images to people, which all of a sudden gets the uh, public aware of it. And, and so uh, uh, there's a thing called WUI, which is wild uh, uh, interface, you know, and people mm-hmm. put their homes right in the middle of these forests, which are right. notoriously going to burn. So, you know, we take a lot of images like that and try to get people to understand what they're doing and try to get communities to maybe not encourage them to move out there, which they were doing in California for a while, some of those Sonoma fires, you know, people were trying to, uh, they were trying to expand and have less congestion and move 
made some zoning changes and they got people all, you know, interspersed throughout the fire, the forest. And the forest, of course, has been burning, and so then there's lots of problems with uh, coming from that. Have you from the air? You can you can really document a lot of that and see what's going on. And again, it's for the public to understand what's going on so that they can make decisions. Uh-huh. Have you done any marine engagements? Uh, do you do any surveys over water, over the oceans? Yeah, I've done a, a bunch of that in the past. Uh, obviously, when we're talking about rivers, um, um, rivers are a big thing that we work on, especially wild and scenic rivers. We feel that uh-huh. uh, you know, that's a designation that really there should be a lot more wild and scenic rivers out there because it's not very restrictive designation. But as in so many of these issues, when you, when you finally get people up in the air who might not necessarily agree with uh, conservationist positions and uh, you know, almost ideologically are opposed to those positions, they learn that some of these protections that people want to put on them uh, really are what they want. Mm-hmm. So the wild and scenic designation, for example, doesn't really change much. It just keeps the, keeps the nature of the river the way it is. Mm-hmm. And one quick story up in the Rocky Mountain Front, up outside of, uh, right south of, of Glacier Park, is one radio host was, you know, sort of a vehemently uh, opposed to conservation and any kind of federal regulation. And uh, we took them up in the air, and they were talking about a designation that was part wilderness, part uh, recreational mm-hmm. designations. And, uh, you know, the people, the experts on the flight, because I'm not an expert on these issues. I certainly know a lot about them, but I, I hope to always fly with a real expert to convey the kind of information mm-hmm. you like. But this guy, you know, started asking questions, and every question he answered, the, the expert would tell him. He said, no, that doesn't change. Oh yes, you can you can graze cattle up here. Yet yeah, no, yes, all this stuff. And and at the end, I asked the guy. I said, "Well, what do you really want of this land?" And he said, "Well, what I really want is for it to remain the same." And you know, once he looked into that, he said, "Oh, it, this is what you guys are proposing." And so he became a sort of a convert in, in oh, that great. regard. And uh, you know that this happens a lot when people start understanding what a monument designation does and what it doesn't do. So again, you know, looking at the the landscape, really making up your own opinion, really educating yourself, regardless of all the vitriol and and the uh, the polarization that people spew these days, in particular, you know, letting the people decide to say, no, this is what I want, and so say, okay, this is this is how you get there. And this is what you don't want. You know, that happens too. So, you know, I have my own opinions, but it's the people's land. Have you done some surveys up in uh, New England? No, just done a few. uh, Not surveys. I've been up in the East Coast uh, doing some uh, work on some oil and gas projects that were happening south of the St. Lawrence, of the Thousand Island St. Lawrence River, and down uh, into Pennsylvania. Not a lot in the East Coast. down in Florida, I've done some work uh, with, and you mentioned Marines, you know, one of the things I used to do was track manatees, uh-huh. you can track them from the air, and uh, down in Central America, you could be looking at reefs and, uh, and destructive practices because of insecticides and things like that, you can actually see the reef dying a little bit from the air, and yeah, it's pretty encompassing, but not, uh, I'm trying to think, I don't think I've done much really up in uh the Appalachians. And all how about how about the Mississippi River Valley? You know, I, I did a couple of flights down there too uh, a long time ago. I hardly remember what the heck mm. it was about. 
but I have flown that that area. It's just gorgeous, yeah. And the Missouri River, I suppose. Well, the Missouri, where yeah, we work a lot in the Missouri. Uh-huh. We start at the headwaters in Yellowstone, of course, and and uh, I've flown way out to Missouri Breaks, which is a big right. area where it's incredible hunting down there. And there's been all kinds of you know debate how much to protect, how much not, you know, what's open, what's not. But from the air, you really get a good perspective of that whole river system and the, and the watersheds. Yeah, and I assume you've flown over the uh, the American Prairie Reserve. Yeah, relatively recently, and uh-huh. some interesting pr- proposals there. I, I, you know, I personally like the idea of what they're doing. I, I uh-huh. understand there's some some ranchers and and uh, respect their uh, positions yeah. who are opposed, but I think people are trying to work it out. And and again, from the air, taking the people up, getting them together. As much as anything, when you get people of opposing views up in the airplane, and there, there's some very interesting talks that go on. I call it conservation conversations in the cockpit. And <clears throat> with a GoPro, I like to try to capture it and make videos of that. Uh-huh. And uh, what what, spe- what species have you done surveys of and found out information about? Well, the one that always stands out because it was so exciting for me was the wolf coming back into the... United States from the Canadian border up to uh-huh, the flag, right. and uh, working with uh, incredible biologists like Diane Boyd way back then, and tracking the collared wolves so they give data, and finally figuring that the data showed this was a real possibility and this was a, a good thing, and then getting the uh, media attention throughout the country for this na- you know, our first national park mm-hmm. to introduce the wolves. The deer, you know, all of the migration corridors that that I was mentioning in particular going up from the Red Desert. Same with, uh, you know, bear habitat, the grizzly bear in Yellowstone. Again, we we did some, uh, Janie took a photo one day. We uh-huh. had a grizzly bear conference up in the Paradise Valley. Uh-huh. And Janie took a picture of a grove of red trees. Maybe 10 years ago, I don't even know. And um, he said, boy, where is this from? And we shopped it around to the, some of the scientists that were at the meeting, and it turned out it was the white bark pine. Uh, I'm uh-huh. not sure if you or your listeners know much about that. But I've seen those dead grows, yes. Yeah, we and we've always had uh, pine uh, infestations from the, the, the beetle, but the white bark has never had those. And the reason is because uh, they grow at such a high altitude, and the, the severe winters, have always uh, killed them off after a winter or so. You get 30, 30 below and they die. But climate change, this doesn't happen very often. So mm-hmm. what happened was they had an enormous outbreak of the white bark pine. We worked with the Forest Service and uh, other people and did a survey of the whole Greater Yellowstone ecosystem because that picture showed that the white bark was being infested. And we found that almost all of the white bark pine were being infested, uh-huh. uh, infected, I guess, or infested, I don't know which word it is. <laughs> and because of those efforts, uh, the grizzly bear was supposed to, uh, again, there's a symbiotic relation between the white bark pine. The right. squirrels, you know, get them, get them down, and right. the, uh, the grizzly bear scoops them up, and right. that's one of the biggest sources of, of food when they hibernate, and just before they hibernate. Anyway, uh, it was uh, information and data that really contributed to keeping the grizzly bear off, you know, on the endangered species list. 
they were thinking of taking them off, and this new information came in, and then for a number more years, they kept them on there. So that's a that's a bear story that uh, we were very much involved in. Cougars, we just did something in California where there's a whole bunch of cougars, and, of course, the wildlife corridors are becoming a bigger and bigger issue mm-hmm. through the years, trying to develop underpasses. Or right, overpasses, yeah. And uh, so the cougar was something that we just uh, were working on outside of Santa Monica, in the Santa Monica Mountains. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, it's pretty wild up there. I was shocked to see how, right. how much... Um, um, uh, rural territory, yeah, you know, right. lots of forests, lots of yeah. stuff. Uh, you Have know, you the, done the tortoise? You know, the uh, the uh, the tortoise in the desert because even they, they want to put solar farms and and uh, some of the places that they want to put these solar farms that there's an endangered species there. Uh-huh. Well, Bruce, uh, we have exhausted our time, and I really appreciate your your telling us telling us about what you're doing. This is really exciting, and. Uh, I uh, hope you continue to keep busy. <laughs> yeah, there's there's plenty of challenges out there. Right. Keep up the good stuff. It's important for people to understand what what there is out there and uh, and uh, opportunities to help. Right. Okay. Thanks very much, Bruce.